Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. And today we're going to look at chapters 60 through 63 this morning. And we're going to be focusing really on how God's love, we're going to be looking at everything that we see in, the, in these three chapters through the filter of God's love. And it kind of just titled the message, it's a love that outshines them all. We're going to see some, some rough stuff, we're going to see some beautiful stuff, but overall everything we see is going to be taking place with everything behind the scenes is taking place is taking place because of God's love. And actually you can say that through the entirety of Scripture. Everything that we see take place in Scripture. All the commands, all the promises, all the judgment, all the truth, everything that we see there has the underpinnings of God's love through all of it. Because no matter where we go, no matter how we wander, no matter how much we can be like Israel at times, God loves us, and His love is sustaining, and His love never fails. And so if you've been here throughout the, the whole series, this is going to sound like repetition to you, but I want to set the stage for where we're going at today. So Isaiah broke it down into two sections. We've gone over that a lot. Sect, uh, chapters 1 through 39 really are talking about Israel and talking about how Israel was very fickle with God. They would love Him one day, and then they stray and wander from Him another day in their faithfulness. And the section that we looked at ended with King Hezekiah, and he made a huge mistake, and God said, listen, in about 150 years, you're going to be carried away from the land I gave you, you're going to be carried off into, into exile by Babylon, and you're going to be there for at least a generation before you're allowed to come back. The beauty in this is that, yes, God does pronounce punishment and judgment, but he also at the very same time says, you will come back. There is hope at the end of the judgment as well. So section two, which is what we've been in this, this kind of season uh, through Christmas time and through, through Advent, is we've been looking at chapters 40 through 66, which is a lot more positive in its nature. Even though it has some negative things as well, God reminds Israel where they've been. It's about three generations beyond now what, the mistake that was made. So God is reminding Israel of where they've been, but also wanted them to know this is where, out of my love and out of my concern for you, this is where I am going to bring you. And this is where I'm going to put it. So there, there's the promise that they're going to be brought back from exile. And on top of that, God promises that Jerusalem, it was sacked and it was destroyed when Babylon came in. That it's going to be rebuilt and it's going to be funded by a whole other country. Everything's going to be rebuilt. Everything's going to be put back to its glory. Actually, probably better than the way they found it. But then section two also, not only just deals with Israel, it turns its focus to a much broader audience. By broader audience, I mean us too, all of us, everyone, everywhere, in every time. Is that not only does God want to deal graciously and lovingly with Israel, but he chooses to deal graciously and lovingly with Gentiles, those who are not part of Israel as well. He chooses to deal graciously and lovingly with all of his human creation. Do we deserve it? No. Now, like Israel, were we carried off into exile? No, but we are born in exile of our sin. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. But because of God's love and grace and mercy, in John 3.16, He sent His only begotten Son that, so that we would not have to perish if we believe in Him, but we would have eternal life. So God says he's going to send this servant who's going to be anointed by God and he's going to make all of this redemption and all of this vindication take place. 
It's a servant that wouldn't go about the vindication the way that we thought it would. Remember we talked about the servant songs, those four songs, and every time we saw the servant, it didn't look like someone who was really like a conquering hero. Remember it said he would be overlooked in his humility, he would suffer for our good, and all of those things. It didn't look like somebody was just going to come in and with an iron fist and set down new law and order. But the servant is righteous, he's innocent of any guilt that we can lay on him. He's sinless. He's without spot. He's without blemish. <coughs> but what does the Bible say in what we looked at in Isaiah? It says that he took our shame, he took our guilt, he took our sin, and he paid the debt for us. When we didn't deserve it. He does that so he can make anyone and everyone who would believe in him righteous in the eyes of God. Not that we could earn our righteousness, but that his righteousness would be placed on us overshadowing our sin, cleansing us of our sin, so that when God looks at us, He sees His Son's righteousness. He says, you are fit for heaven, you are fit for my kingdom. We get a picture of what that anointed servant does in chapter 61. Let's move over one chapter. We're going to go through 16 through 63. We're going to bounce around a little bit this morning. In verse number 1 of Isaiah 61, says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That word anointed is important, especially in the Jewish context, because the Messiah means the anointed one. So what is being pronounced is a prophecy that the anointed one is going to come, and he's going to do this. He's going to bring good news to the poor. Which, by the way, the word gospel that we use about the plan of salvation, it really means good news. To bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to bring liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our Lord's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, a festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify Him. You may say, wow, that sounds a whole lot like Jesus. It sounds like Jesus because it is talking about Jesus. It's speaking of the Messiah that would come, the anointed one that would come. And this is what he does. He sets the captive free. He gives liberty to the captive, to those who are in prison. And he brings good news to those who mourn. And again, it's all things that we don't deserve, right? So we'll revisit that verse in just a minute. But why would God deal with us in this way? God had to deal with sin. So this is how he chooses to do it. He's going to send someone who is going to take our sin on himself and carry it off. And, and cleanse us from it through his sacrifice. Why would he choose to deal with us in this way? Because really, why would God give up his only son so that we could have eternal life? Why would he sacrifice? Why would he vindicate us? Why would he redeem us? Why would he care to restore us? Because it lies in what we talked about this week with Advent. Anybody remember what we're talking about this week in Advent? One person remembers what happened 30, 30 seconds ago. We're talking about love, right? Why does God do all of this? Why does God sacrifice so much so we can have what we deserve? Because He loves us. Because He loves us. What have we done to deserve that love? What did Israel do to deserve that love? If you go back and you look through Israel's timeline of history, it's really just one like, kind of break up after another with God. They're like, God, we love you. And then all of a sudden, something else just get, grabs their affection and attention. And they're off worshiping someone else or serving someone else. Thinking someone else is better than God. Why does he do it? Because he loves us. And he loves us with a love that outshines all other loves. 
it, 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 and we're going to look at God's faithful love through all of this this morning. What compared God to merciful to Israel? His love for them. What compelled God to offer salvation through Christ? His love for us. And what compelled Jesus to willingly go to the cross? His love for the Father. And also his love for us. Because we couldn't be redeemed any other way. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. This is our key verse. Right? This is what we're going to be using as the driving verse that we look at everything through. Isaiah 63, verse 7 says, I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us. Even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love. We need to be careful not to miss Isaiah's message here because as he's reviewing all of this, and I think it's as he's reviewing the entire body of work in Isaiah, the whole, the whole thing from chapter 1 all the way through 66, he stops right here and he has this almost parenthetical statement where he says, I, if nobody else does, I'm going to be telling it on the mountain, just like we sang in I'm going to tell people of God's praiseworthy love. I'm going to tell the world of his faithful love because what he sees in this timeline of everything God has given him to write about is this. Is that no matter how many times people turned away from God, whether it was hatred or apathy or whatever it was, God was always consistently, completely loving his people. Always. I will make known the Lord's faithful. He says that he intends to make it known how good he is and all the wonderful things he's done based on what? Based on the compassion that God has for us. And it's not just moments where God says, oh, I love you for a little while. It's not just moments of good feelings or good vibes. It's like, I love you through the good. I love you through the bad, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health. I love you without faith. I love you in spite of everything. That's the love he has for us. So this morning, that's what I want to look at. Isaiah tells us about this faithful love, and I want us to see just how good this love is that God has for us. So the first thing that we see, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 60, we're going to see this, is that God's love is radiant. We don't use that word a whole lot anymore, but God's love is radiant, meaning it just, it just radiates from Him. When you look at God, we always say God is love, right? God is love. Why? Because you can't look at God and look at the acts of God and look at what God does and read the words of God without realizing, man, God loves us. He loves us. Look at what it says in verse number 1 of Isaiah 6. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord shines over you, for look, darkness will cover the earth. Total darkness will cover the peoples. Which, by the way, darkness is always a metaphor for sin and brokenness and the chaos that we have in our lostness, which is the state of this world. For darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness will cover the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you. And his glory will appear over you, and nations will come to your light, kings to your shining brightness. Raise your eyes and look around, and all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away, and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Now, I honestly went back and forth on this point of whether to say God's love is magnificent or God's love is radiant. But I think what it is is both. God's love is magnificent, meaning it's the brightest it can be. And it never diminishes. God's love is basically looked at as a great light. He says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. That's the light of hope, of joy, of peace. It's the light of the Messiah, the light of victory, all of it. He says, Your light has come. And what is that light, or who is that light? It's the light of the servant, the light of the servant who came and who is now given all this hope. And it's a continuation response to what it said in chapter 59 that we looked at last week with Pastor Chris. Up there in like verses 16 or somewhere around there. 
It says that there's this, this warrior kind of person that's going to put on this spiritual armor of righteousness and, and, and vindicate us. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he fought for our salvation. And so this is a continuation response that Jesus has come to redeem Israel. And, what, and why did the warrior have to come? Because they couldn't protect themselves. Chapter 59 says, we had no one to stand in our place, but then God sent the man. So the reaction to all of this is since all of the vindication is there, arise and live in the light of that. Stop wandering around in darkness and live in the light of that. He's saying that God has, God's love has placed this promise of his full glory over us. It's kind of like when you're outside in the dark. Now, a lot of you, if, you, if you're like me and you, you're a city dweller, the ambient light kind of, when there's a full moon, the ambient light of the street lights and all that stuff doesn't really make a difference. But if you're out on land, there's not a lot of ambient light around you. You know the difference when it's a full moon and when there's no moon now, right? When it's a full moon, you can see a little bit when you're out there in the dark. This is what God is talking about right now. That right now, we still live in, with darkness kind of around us. But what he says is God's light has hovered over us since Jesus has come. God's light is hovering over us and it is giving us light in the darkness that gives perspective to everything that we see. That means that we look beyond the dark sky and we see the light that is shining, that God has, that God has given us, that he loves us, that he's got us in his hand, that he's got everything under control. So when we face the darkness that the world has around us, we see it in the, we see it just like kind of, just, it doesn't make it as scary when you're out when the full moon light. When you're in total darkness, without that light, it's scary. Here's the thing. One day, when Jesus returns, there's going to be no more moonlight. There's going to be no more darkness. It's going to be bright as the new day. And there's going to be no more fear. There's not going to be any more things that have to happen. We're going to see everything as God sees it. And everything will be brought into the light of God's justice. He says, for look, darkness will cover the earth. Total darkness will cover over the people. But God's glory will appear over those who come, who God loves. And just like that full moon at night, one day, God's glory is going to pierce through all of that. When he comes to man. There will be no more setting sun. There will be more of that. Why do we need the light? This is a simple question, folks. Why do we need light? So we can see, right? We need light so we can see. We turned off all the lights in here, and we blacked out all the windows, and there was no light, and we said, okay, leave. The only hope you would have is those exit lights still work. Right? Yeah. We need the light so that we can see. And here's the thing. Its most basic use is so that we can see in the dark. That's what we think. But scientifically speaking, dark only exists when there is the complete absence of light. That's the only scientific status of darkness. If there is the presence of even one candlelight in the midst of that, then it's not a question of how dark it is. It's just a question of how much luminescence is in it. Why? Because even science knows this, that darkness has to flee in the presence. And this is what God is saying, that while I am present, you are the light of the world, you help to dispel the darkness around the world as well. The Bible says that Jesus is the greatest light of the world. He dispels that darkness as well. Light is also used to guide us in the darkness. To, you know, back before GPS and Apple Maps, you know, how did, how did the people get around on ships in the middle of the night? They looked up to the North Star. The brightest light in the sky and use that to navigate. Jesus tells us that his lamp is a feet, or the Bible tells us that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
it navigates us. God has given us this great light that we look to. If we take our eyes off the light, we lose our way. And this is what he was telling us. Arise and shine because your light has come. It's come to give you hope. It's come to give you a proper perspective. It's come to guide you until I return for you. But it also attracts us and it draws us in. Too. But you ever watched a moth to a flame? If you're sinister and sadistic, you love watching that, right? Bugs, zappers, and stuff. You said that, like, yeah. It comes to be juicy with me. Right? But light draws us in. It attracts us, especially when we're in total darkness. If you're out in the middle of the night and you're driving along the road, you run out of gas, and you're in the middle of a country road, what are you doing? You're fixing your eyes to see some light from a city some, somewhere nearby. And you know, I've got to make it there if I'm going to find any help. The Bible says that God is that light that shines over us. That if we keep our eyes fixed upon that we who are in darkness can find our way if we will just come to the light of the Lord. It also tells us that later on in our verse that what happens? Nations are drawn to that light. Kings are drawn to that light. It's kind of a nod to what happens in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2. When the Magi were drawn by the light that God placed in the star that shined over where Jesus was. God has always used that metaphor of the light to do something that guides us. It draws us to him. But then that light is a light that never goes out. Look at verse number 19, chapter 16. So the sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. It's talking about a time when God sets up his eternal kingdom, and sin is no more. And he set everything right. He says the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your splendor. The sun will no longer set. Your moon will no longer fade. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your sorrow will be over. Here's the promise that God has given us. Is that through Jesus Christ, through the Messiah, God will make everything right. And one day, there will be no more darkness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. Because that same light that hovers over us today... There will be no more veil of darkness to try to diminish the light. You will see him in all the glory. This light's no longer hovering. It's on full display like the The light's never extinguished and it's prophet prophetic for how things will be when Jesus returns. So God's love is magnificent. It's radiant, but it's also extravagant. The way he loves us, he doesn't just love us brightly, but he loves us extravagantly as well. When God loves, he doesn't just show us enough love to be just enough good enough. When God loves us, he loves us more than enough. And he loves us more than we could ever imagine. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We say, oh yeah, God is love. God loves me. But we live as though, no, we got to do something to keep that love going. Somebody needs to hear this today. There is nothing that you can do or me to make God love you more than you love Christ. And there is also nothing that you can do make him love you any less right now. Because his love for you is always extravagant. His love for you is always more than we can imagine. See, God gives us in this in our text, he gives us a promise of prosperity in verse number five. He says, you will see and be radiant yourselves, and your heart will tremble, it will rejoice, because the riches of the sea will become yours, the wealth of the nations will come to you. Isaiah goes on in that passage, he talks about caravans of camels coming from Midian and from Sheba and from Ephah, loaded down with gold and frankincense. There we go again, thinking about the wise men, right? 
He says there will be livestock from plains and lands and ships as far as Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. He says that foreigners are going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you want to know that, that if that promise comes true, just read the book of Nehemiah. Spoiler alert, it does. It says the city gates will always be open. This is, what's, this is something important to again forget. When, it, when God promises that one day your city gates will be there, your walls will be there, but your city gates will never have to close again. That's basically telling the people of Israel who have constantly been, been marks for invasion. It says you will no longer be invaded. You no longer have to worry about your security. Because there's coming a day when I will be your security, I will be your peace, and your city gates will be open. You don't have to worry about people coming into the invade. People are going to be coming to you they're going to be coming because they're bringing wealth and riches and you will be a city and you will be a place of great prosperity. It also means that they're going to prosper in what they have to offer the rest of the world. It says the city gates will always be open. It's a welcoming for everyone to come in. It's a metaphor for Jesus Christ. But Jesus is that gate through which we come into the kingdom. And it is always open to us. Why? John 3.16, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish with everlasting life. Verse number 9 says, yes, the coast and the islands will win for me. That tells us that he's extravagant in his reach as well. That God is not just promising Israel all of these good things. He's making that promise to everyone. All the coasts, from coast to coast. And once you get to the end of the coast, all the islands that are out there that don't have any coast as well. What it's saying is God loves, covers every piece of humanity. It goes far and wide. It goes deep and high. He loves us all. Everyone, everywhere falls under the reach of God's affection. And it provides something. This is how extravagant God's love is. is it provides something that we could never get on our own. So moving to chapter... Uh, chapter 61, we see even more extravagance of God's love that it provides what we desperately need. Look at what it says in verse number 1 and 2. Look at this a, a second ago. Let's look at it again. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? To bring good news to the poor. He sent to heal the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captive, freedom to the prisoners, to claim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of our Lord's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. He says, we get healing to the brokenhearted. We don't deserve healing. Why? Because what we deserve in our sin, and what we deserve in our rebellion, is consistent punishment, consistent condemnation. The wages of our sin, the book of Romans says, is what? It's death. What we deserve in our sickness of sin is death. But what did he say? I'll provide you healing. What we deserve in our sin is to remain captive to our sin and continually serve it. But what does Jesus offer? What does the Messiah offer? He offers liberty to the captive. He offers freedom to the prisoners. It's freedom on top of the liberty that we have. Not only liberty from our captivity, but the freedom to enjoy what we have now. And then he says, I offer the day of God's vengeance to the morning. I don't know about you, but when I lose a loved one, when I miss them, I often wish that you know, they could be here and, and things, and I often wish that they didn't have to go through disease or whatever it was that took them. Here's what the Word says. I offer hope, and I offer comfort to those who mourn. Because we know that in a relationship with Christ, we never have to say goodbye to a loved one who knows Christ. We say, I'll see you later. So God offers these things, none of these things that we deserve, but He gives it to us. And then He lavishes more things on that we can never deserve either. In verses 3 he says, 
I'm going to give a, a crown of beauty to you in exchange for ashes. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's symbolic of the way the Jewish people would mourn and show repentance over their sins. Have you ever been reading the Old Testament that says somebody put on sackcloth and ashes? Have you ever heard that phrase? Mm -hmm. What that was, was it was a... It was a way that Jewish people were commanded to show a repentant heart over their sins. They were going literally in mourning for their sins, almost like a way of paying penance. And when you saw a person walking around with ashes on them, it was meant to make to call attention to them as that they are walking through repentance right now. Or they are walking through a season of mourning or downcast spirit. But what does God say? Because instead of what you deserve, a continual existence of sackcloth and ashes, of sin that will not be forgiven, what am I going to do? I'm going to offer you a crown of beauty instead of your ashes. I'm going to offer you an oil of gladness instead of you continually putting ashes over your head. I'm going to offer you splendid clothes in exchange for that sackcloth. What we deserve in our sin is eternal sackcloth and ashes, but what God gives us is a crown, a bath, and new clothes. Isn't that beautiful? God's love is extravagant. He gives us more than we would ever deserve, but God's love is also restoring. He restores us. First thing that we see is He restores Israel to their lost blessings. So this has been a running theme through Isaiah, right? Israel would constantly, as I say it again, would constantly turn from God. And really, when we, the reason that we look at the Old Testament and see Israel, we use that as kind of a metaphor for our life and our relationship with the Lord. Because we're not, I wish that we were always on this kind of plane, right? Always just growing in the Word. But really what we look like more is like this. Come on. We go through seasons where we're not as in tune with the Lord as we would hope to be. But Israel is constantly, every time they wonder, what does God do? He restores. He brings them back and He restores. And He's constantly willing to do that. Why? Because He loves them. This covenant that He made with them, with Abraham, saying, I'll make you, I'll make you, uh, a great and mighty nation, you will make that great and mighty nation my people. Uh, we're going to bless the entire world through that. It's a great covenant that God said, but what happens? They constantly walk away from the covenant, but note that God never breaks his end of the covenant. Never. He's always the one that has to be returned to. He never moves away. It's always us who move away from him. In our text, we see in chapter 61 through 63, all that God does to restore Israel to a right relationship with in 61 verse 4, we see that God promises that the walls are going to be rebuilt. In 61 verse 8, we see that God's going to make a permanent covenant with them. But the restoration reaches further than just Israel, too, because he clothes all of us in salvation. He clothes all of us in righteousness. In verses 10 through 17, Isaiah breaks out in this hymn of spontaneous praise. Like he's writing all this, and he's like, I just got to stop. And like lift my hands or do a praise dance if he's Pentecostal or something, I don't know. But he's like, i got to stop and just praise God for how good he is. He's overwhelmed by how good God is and the patience of God and the love of God. And he says this in verse number 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord and I exalt my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I don't know if Augustus thought about maybe wearing a turban yesterday, but he did, and he didn't. I don't know. It was a good choice. But all of this is metaphorical, it's poetic, speaking to the fact that this is a celebratory move. That we've gone from mourning and grieving and loss to now because of the Messiah and because of God's love, we have been made to where we can celebrate, where we have a future, and where we have a hope.
Isaiah is overwhelmed because God has completely covered him in his righteousness. He's complete. He's robed me in righteousness. He's covered me head to toe. And like I said earlier, what that means is when we stand before God, the holy and righteous judge, what he sees is the robe of righteousness that Christ places around us through salvation. He no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our rebellion. What he sees is us being clothed and covered in his righteousness. We aren't just put, we're not just putting on a little bit of salvation here and there. Once we are saved, we are fully clothed. You can't get more saved than the moment you come to Christ. You are fully and completely in him. And, and forever and always in him as well. So, so much that when God looks at us, like I said, he doesn't see our sin. He just sees the world of righteousness. Not only does he cover us head to toe, but he changes our name as well. This is how much he restores us. He changes our name. This is probably one of my favorite parts. I love to look at the moments in Scripture where God changes the name of someone. Every time he entered into a covenant with someone in the Old Testament, what did he do? He changed their name. Think about Abraham. Abraham was Abram. Well, that's not much of a deviation, but it still is a change, a change of name. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. He even looked at Peter and said, look, man, you're called Simon, but I'm going to name you Petros. I'm going to name you the rock because he's entering into a covenant with him that they're going to, they're going to start the church. Everyone is changing. And what I love about God is God never, God never calls us, not all our actions are. God always refers to them in their perfected name, in their perfected state. Always. So he changes the name. Look at what happens to Israel in this passage in 62, verses 2 and 4. It says, nations will see your righteousness. All kings will see your glory. You'll be given a new name that the Lord's mouth will announce. You'll be given a glorious crown in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the palm of God's hand, and you will no longer be called deserved. Your land will no longer be called desolate. Instead, you will be called my delight is in her, or maybe it says Hesila in your translation. And your land will be called Mary. And he says, you love you. For the Lord's delight is in you. And your land will be Mary. It says you're going to be given a new name that the Lord's mouth will pronounce. This is how much God's love restores us. We have no ability to change our own name. But because of God, our name changes. As a church, we're called the Bride of Christ. I mean, I know we're in 2023, and some people always don't do it, but when we get married, a lot of times, as the bride, bride change their name. They're given a new name. This is a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we come to Christ. We're given a new name. We're drawn into the family of God. He says, you're no longer called deserted, or your land will no longer be called desolate. How did Israel get this description to begin with? They got that description because when they wandered from God, God's blessing ceased. <coughs> They were now dealt desolate and deserted. But with God, they are married and they are the one that his heart desires. So how does this apply to us in salvation? That's wonderful for Israel, but how does that apply to us in salvation? Well, over the book of Romans chapter 8, it tells us this, is that when we get saved, we're given the spirit of adoption. The Bible says when we are adopted, we're given a new name. And we also are given a new title to refer to God as Abba, which means Dad. God changes our name at the moment of salvation. We go from being orphaned to being part of the family of God. 
He changes our name. And the other thing that he does is he vindicates the ones that he loves. Chapter 63, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. But we see someone coming from Edom in what they say is crimson stained garments from Boswell. The one who is splitted in his apparel, striding in his formidable mind. It is I, the Lord says, vindication, powerful to save. It goes on with some more graphic uh, illustration of how those garments became crimson stained. It wasn't just, you know, they didn't just go over to Macy's and buy a red shirt. It was the crimson stain comes from blood. Verse number three. What's interesting is in the first advent that Christ came, his garments were stained with his own blood. When Jesus comes again, his garments will be stained with the blood of the enemy. Because he will conquer and he will vindicate. We are vindicated by Christ's blood from our sin. And we will be vindicated with him when he conquers the enemy. We have to be restored. We have to be vindicated. This is why Christ comes. And this is why that blood is shed. So his love is magnificent, guiding us to him. His love is extravagant, giving us what we don't deserve. It restores us, making us right with him. And then it's also faith. It's a love that has never subsided. It's never changed. It's a love that's been proven over and over and over again. That's what Isaiah says in our key verse. He says, I'll praise you for your praiseworthy acts for all that you have done for your people. How many times has God proved his love never fails to Israel? Over and over again. How many times has God proven how his love never fails to you? Over and over again. It's a love that outlasts our wandering as well. We talk all about how Israel wanders, but let's be honest, we wander too. Just like that old hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel prone to leave the God I love. Here's my little heart, will take the seat, seat for that course. We wander from him, but what happens? In the, in the midst of our wandering, it outlasts all of our wandering. At the end of our wandering, at the end of thinking we <coughs> on our own, where is God every time standing? right here. I've never left you, and I love you just as much as before you left. Just like the Father to the Father. I love you just as much as I did before. It's a love that outlasts our wondering and it's faithful. It's how faithful his love is. But lastly, this morning, it's a love that is praiseworthy. It should be praiseworthy. It should cause us to praise him. You go back to the Verse number one of chapter 60. And what I find is interesting, at the beginning of each chapter, Isaiah is telling us this. He's telling us that he deserves our praise. Right? In verse number one of chapter 60 says, Arise and shine for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. Call us to arise and praise him for hope. Praise him for what he has done. Praise him for the light that he has offered us praise him for the fact that he loves us in the midst of everything. He says, Arise and shine is an invitation to be awakened to just how much hope and joy we have in the world. Israel always went through this time. When they came back to the Lord, there was a season of revival in their lives and in their country. For us, we have those moments as well. There are those moments when we kind of sleep on God, don't we? We're kind of like, yeah, it's been a while since I've had time with him. It's been a while since I've reviewed how good he is to me. But every time we do, there's something within our spirit that just causes us to say, God, thank you. God, thank you for me. That's why I love when we have testimony time here in the mornings in our service. It's just somebody just have a chance to say, hey, God's been good to me. It's a love that calls us to arise and praise. It's a love that has given us 
good news that heals us. Look what it says again in verse number one of chapter six. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives, to cause us to praise Him for the good news that we have. Do we deserve the gospel? No. But He has provided us good news. It's also a love that makes us hard for makes it hard for us to remain silent about it. Look at what He says in chapter sixty-two, verse one. So I will keep silent because of Zion. I will not keep still because of Jerusalem until the righteousness shines like a bright light of salvation like a flaming torch. Isaiah is so filled with hope here that he says, if no one else wants to talk about the promises, I will. Right? How filled with the hope of salvation would you say that you are? You see, we talk about what has our heart, don't we? Right? We talk about what has our heart. Try to keep a grandparent silent about her grandchildren. Ain't gonna happen. Right? Try to keep a Kentucky fan silent when they're playing good. Try to keep them from crying when they're playing bad. What we have, what has our heart has our praise, usually. Is what Isaiah is saying here. Look, I'm holding on to the promises and I have to talk about those. I have to share those promises. Are we so filled with that hope that we can't help but share it? Or is it just too easy to stay silent about that? <coughs> is it just too easy? It also calls us to go out and prepare a way for all the people that come in. Look what it says in verse number 10 and 11. Chapter 16 says, Go out. Go out through the city gates. Prepare a way for the people. Build up. Build up highway. Clear away the stones. Raise a banner for all the people. So now all those gates are left open for everyone to come in. Now what is God saying? All right, you who are, are in the kingdom and you who are enjoying that security, go out through those gates and make it easier for everybody else to get here. Smooth out the stones. Make a highway so that people can get to the gate. Raise a banner saying, here it is. What he's really saying here is it's, the, it's, it's an Old Testament idea. There's an Old Testament kind of kind of foreshadowing of what Jesus tells us to do is to go into all the nations and make disciples. To go and to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. To do whatever it takes, even if it means buying a whole lot of baked goods so that money can go overseas so the gospel can go forward. Do everything you can say, hey man, I like paying the show that way. Whatever it takes. Prepare a highway so that all may come through the gates. Are we doing what we can to clear a path for the people to come to Jesus? And it also is a love that causes us to want to make that love known to other people. There's, so, there's, there's no one more annoying to me than someone who just fell in love. I'm just teasing. It's not like but, but seriously, that's all I want to talk about. Their eyes you know, are all glazed over. they got this smile that they just can't get rid of and stuff. It's like, Everything is wonderful, you know. They're walking around like, does it smell like roses everywhere? You know, it's all it's just everything. Is Are you smelling roses and hibiscus? I don't know. They just have lost touch with reality. So overwhelmed. Literally, I've been wearing Mary for 21 years, and I still smell roses everywhere I go. Yes, I do. Yeah. All right. Might need a place to stay tonight. <laughs> when God has our heart, our heart shows. 
what we're trying to say. This is what Sophocles Isaiah says in verse number 11 of 62. Save daughters on it. Look, your salvation is coming. His wages are living and the Lord accompanies them. Again, Isaiah was determined to make his faithful love known to everyone and anyone who would hear. See, we come to know the magnificence and the radiance, the extravagance, the faithfulness, and the restoring nature of God's love. It changes what we talk about. It changes the way we see things. It changes us. That's at Christmas time. We review God's love. It changes us. It renews our heart. It renews uh, our, our vision of just how good God is. Man, how quick we are to wonder that we can't go 300, more than 365 days without needing that reminder. Just how good God is. I don't say that as a condemnation, but just to put things in perspective. So as we close out this morning, I just want to ask you, of these points that we looked at this morning, which one really hits you hard? Do you know that God's love for you is magnificent and it's radiant? Do you know that? Do you see that? Do you see the evidence of that? Do you know that the love of God is extravagant for you? Have you reviewed just how much God loves you lately? Do you know the love of God and its restorative power? Have you come to Christ as your Savior? Have you come to Him to be restored? Have you have your name changed and be clothed in the robe of righteousness? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.